welcome to No Man's Land, brought to you by Tennis Zone Plus, Washington, D.C.'s premier tennis retailer. Alright guys, what's up? Welcome into this week's episode of No Man's Land Tennis, sitting here with Freddie. What's up guys? I'm going to recap this week in tennis, a lot to unpack. Kazakhstan and Vienna, two smaller tournaments happening this week. Milman got the dub in Kazakhstan. Uh, standout match of the week, I think, was Milman versus Tiafo. Milman all-time 3-1 against Tiafo. Tiafo's kryptonite. He just, like, can't consistently beat a player like that. Cannot get past the Aussie. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a player like that. I, I just think... I don't know. They've had... I think Milman stands out because... They've played what four times, and every single match has gone the distance. Francis has only taken one of the matches this year at the U.S. Open, and he had to crawl back and win in five. Yeah, it's just something about they play. To me, they play a pretty similar game style. Both quick, both move pretty well, hit a great ball, but they're not going to blow you off the court. Just solid players, and I think maybe it's that veteran experience that Milman has. That takes the edge over over Francis. Yeah, I like it when they play each other because it's always a high quality match. Um, definitely hope Francis can you know turn that result around uh, later on and as we progress in his career, just because you know we want him to do well. Um, let's move on forward to Vienna. Rublev, this guy's on a run. What did they, what did they say today? Five, five titles, titles this year. Yeah, five titles, six finals. He's made so he's. He's the title leader in 2020. 39-7 all-time record this year, I think. Something crazy. Crazy. I mean, winning a ton of matches. So Rublev takes out Sonego. Sonego had a blockbuster win against Djokovic. Yeah, no vax. <laughs> Bye-bye. Did Sonego earn the win, or did Djokovic, quote, as our, as our uh, podcast guest would say, professional tank? Yeah, he... He even came out in an interview, I think, and said something like, he, he was like, ah, I've got the year-end number one. My focus wasn't there, if I'm being honest. Uh, Lorenzo played a pretty good match today, but I just wasn't there mentally. And I feel like that's just the nicest way of saying, I checked out. Why the hell am I in Vienna? Get me to London. I want to be on lockdown for the next month in London because the rest of the world's closing. Yeah. Yeah, I... um. I don't understand why, like, you've never heard a number one player in the world admit to tanking, right? Like, you, it's just not kind of how you expect the number one player in the world to carry themselves no matter who it is. But I'm not going to rip the guy. I don't think it's right that he, you know, did it. But I'm not going to rip the guy for something that, like, Kyrgios and Pear do and we think is hilarious. Yeah, but those guys get fined for it. Bernard Tomic gets fined because he tanks. And I know it's more obvious, but the guy came out and said he wasn't even mentally there. And you could see it on the court. And they're not going to fine oh, yeah. him. Um, but it's the, the way that Pear and, like, uh, Kyrgios do it, they kind of – there's no hiding it. Like, they just do it and, like, they laugh it off and, like, it's whatever. Like, you yeah. kind of expect it to mix it in every once in a while. Like, Kyrgios was tanking in Shanghai. He wasn't yeah. trying to hide that a couple oh. years ago. Novak, like, will lose, and he'll just, like, smirk and, like, you know, wry smile because he knows that, like, he's not trying, and it's, like, that smile that, like, God, if I was trying today, he wouldn't beat me. Like, it's just, like, just own the tank. Just own the tank. If you get fined, so be it, but just own the tank. Do you think someone's funneling some money? 
to lose those matches? Are we, are we fixing? Do we need to? Do we need to run an investigation? I don't know. Maybe we should call the ATP. <laughs> uh, Vienna, Rublev winning Vienna has kind of put this thought into my mind, Fred. Of who is the best Russian on tour right now? I mean, yeah, right. If you say right now, Rublev. There's no. There's no other answer. The guy. The guy has the most tours of any player, not just Russians, on tour right now. Yeah. And level wise, the guy's playing. He's playing at such a high level. So he's the first Russian to win five titles in a calendar year since Davidenko in two thousand nine. Yeah. Yeah, that's nuts. So, would you take okay? Would you take Rublev's twenty twenty, or would you take Medvedev's twenty nineteen? So. Quality of tournaments that he's he's you know winning are not the highest. I think he's won Hamburg, Saint Petersburg, Vienna, uh, Doha, and yeah. another one. But and they're all two fifties or five hundreds. Medvedev last year went to he won Cincinnati yep. finals of help me Toronto Grand Slam, Grand Slam another Masters Cincinnati DC yeah five hundred yeah I don't know that's that's an interesting debate I think. It's hard because if we had a full year, would Rublev, would Rublev have done the same thing? Would these have results have spanned past? I mean, if you think about it, they got to play January and a little, almost all of February, so two months, and then they took all this time off, and now they've played another two and a half months. So they've basically played 40% of a year, and he's done this well. So do you think if they played 100% of a year, would the results have carried on? Or was he the benefactor of some people not playing, like Federer and Nadal and these guys not playing these other tournaments? Or do you think that this would have stayed throughout? I think that he was rounding into a great 2020, regardless of how big, it, how long and how many tournaments we played. And the thing that impresses me the most is that he's doing it on every surface. I mean, we didn't play any grass court tournaments this year, but he won Hamburg. And then... Now he's winning indoor hard courts. Doha was outside hard court. Like it's he's playing well. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. And but he is young. Like yeah. you, you can't. You, you, and Medvedev's young too. You can't really see you yet. Compare but, you compare it to last year's Med, Medvedev season last year, and like Medvedev sustained it for pretty much the the whole year. Like he started off strong. Like I think Medvedev started off with a title last year. And then sustained it all the way through the finals of the U.S. Open where he lost in five to Nadal. Well, where Rublev, I think, yeah, I'm with you. I think he could have sustained that level, but I guess, yeah, we'll never, we'll never know. Well, okay, give me the rankings. You got Medvedev, you have Rublev, and you have Hatchinov. I'm going to take, eh, take Rublev, Medvedev, Hatchinov. I, I, I think, yeah. I'm going to switch to top two. I like Medvedev, Rublev, Hatchinov. I think Medvedev has that mental edge over Rublev just because I think growing up, he's been the taller guy. He's been the more fit guy. He's been just the better, slightly better player through juniors. And then he made he's made a Grand Slam final. It's like that mental edge. I think even though Rublev's level is so high right now, I think it's just playing your friends and somebody just has that slight little mental edge makes it difficult. So I've got... I've got Daniel at number one. <laughs> Love it. And then my quick prediction before we move on to the next topic, all three of those guys are going to be in World Tour Finals next year. You're going to have three Russians in the top ten. All right, moving on to the Paris Masters. Uh, qualifying matches are going on right now. Uh, a lot of withdrawals. 
everybody's pulling out, and it's not because they're sick or anything. I mean, we saw... They might be sick and tired of the year. Yeah, that's what I think all of us are. <laughs> um, but, I mean, here's a quick list of who's out. Dimitrov's out, Pear, Gasquet, Monfils. That's a trio of Frenchmen who don't even want to play in their own country. That should say something. Dominic Team is a blister. He's got a little blister. <laughs> Shapovalov's out. Isner, he's still looking for query, I think. Nishikori. <laughs> and then Novak's Djokovic. He's just he's just saving up for the World Tour Finals because he knows Nadal's never won it, and it's his tournament to win um, this year without Roger playing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to even look at who's the who are the top couple seeds here. I mean, oh, Rafa's playing. So Rafa's playing Paris. Nadal, Tsitsipas are your one and two seeds. But, like, a guy like Stan Wawrinka could totally benefit from all these people dropping out. Yeah. Goffin, he's not going to win this tournament, but he could make a run. Here's, here's what to look for. We're doing this podcast on a Sunday. Media day at Paris Masters is today. So, Zverev is playing the tournament. He's, oh, yeah, he's in. Zverev is playing the tournament. And if anybody hasn't seen this guy's week, it's been tumultuous. So he's got, you know, domestic violence accusations, which we're not going to touch. We're not going to touch. It's not something to joke about, but it's something he's definitely got to deal with, whether it's true, whether it's not. We're going to leave that alone. But he's also expecting a child with another woman. So you can believe that he's going to get a ton of questions this week. So that's just something to look out for. Keep if, your if you're in that media room, since we're in the media now, yeah. if you're in that media room, what are you, what are you asking? What's the first question? Uh, I'm going to ask him if his, if his child's going to be a star tennis player. Yeah. What do you think, boy or girl? Uh, I mean, either way, it's they're playing doubles together. I mean. Yeah, I guess mixed or. <laughs> yeah, because if he has a child now, by the time they could play together, he's what, 40? Yeah, and all they got to do is make a rule where you can play like three guys on one court and you can get Misha, Sasha, and the son out there. <laughs> anyway, keep your eyes open for that. That should be uh, entertaining to watch him squirm at the podium. All right, we will be back with our podcast guest this week. Fred, bring him in. Yeah, this week's podcast interview is with Daryl Cummings. Daryl, legendary coach down in the Norfolk, Virginia area, coached at Old Dominion, coached at Norfolk State, he was at Virginia Wesleyan, he's now running his own club, let's just say this guy, he does it all, this guy <laughs> does it all, so give it a listen. Nice to, nice to put a, a face with the tweets. There you go, that's always good, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah he he called he texted me one day and he goes, "Who the hell is this Cummings guy that just tweets nonstop?" <laughs> I'm Donald Donald Trump's brother. That's who. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Well, let's dive into it. So, talk to us a little bit about your background, kind of getting into tennis. I know you were at Old Dominion. You've kind of been the king of the Cape. You're doing UTR. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so once upon a time ago, um, I, I was a college tennis player. I played at Lees McRae Junior College, 
and I went there for all the right reasons. I was socially inept, academically I was horrible, and athletically I hadn't developed. So I went for all the right reasons. And then I transferred back home to Old Dominion University, played tennis there, 84 to 86. In 1992, I became um, the Old Dominion women's head coach. A couple of years later, I took on the head coaching duties of the men's tennis team. So I stayed there for 19 years. I'm born and raised in Norfolk. Um, and then so in, I, I did that for 19 years. And uh, in 2007, we built the, the Folks Stevens Indoor at Old Dominion. So if you've ever seen it, it's seven and a half million dollar facility and it's sort of my baby. And I, I uh, ask a lot of friends for a lot of money and, and they're still my friends. So that's, that's a good thing. So, so that happened about 2007. And at the same time, uh, that's, that's when we started UTR at, at Old Dominion. So it was uh, myself, uh, Dave Howell, who's the, the older guy who thought up the concept and then five former Old Dominion players um, that were in their 20s, uh, we put a company together called Universal Tennis. And, and so that was 2007. And um, so in 2007, we, we get that baby going with the five former Old Dominion players. We add one UVA guy, Steve Clark, who's a, a patent attorney. He's an older guy, uh, patent attorney. And um, uh, also, he's also an engineer. So he's the smartest guy in the room, basically. So if you saw the movie uh, Moneyball, Dave Howe's the guy that was never in the movie. He was Bill James who wrote formulas and concepts. Steve Clark would have been Yona Hill who's uncomfortable in his own skin and doesn't want any attention. And then I would be Billy Bean. I'm the guy that's uh, you know bullshitting around, just making it happen, utilizing it and so forth. And I need about 30% of information to let it ride. <laughs> that, so that 2007 to 2009 period, we just got the indoor. Uh, I had two former players in the main draw of Wimbledon in 2007. We started UTR, and then um, uh, uh, then I bought this club in Virginia Beach in 2009. So looking back, it sounds like really strange. You're the head coach of men and women at Old Dominion. I was the tennis director, UTR startup buy a club, couple guys, main draw Wimbledon. So that's kind of, you, you figure that was, that was enough to keep everybody active. Now, for some reason, I got divorced in 2010. I don't know what led to that at all. I don't know if it was the UTR or so forth, but my, my former wife and I have a great relationship. Um, so anyway, uh, so I retired from Old Dominion 2011, 19 years, shut it down, started to focus on the club, branding, entrepreneurship on my own. And then I got a call from uh, the Virginia Wesleyan AD and she, she, we were interviewing candidates. And then she just asked me, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And um, I said, well, um, no, not really. But she goes, well, you get to use a charter bus whenever you travel. And I go, you get a charter bus? I go, I'm in. So I coached Virginia Wesleyan for two years, you know, after I took a year off. And then, um, so we did that and, and we had some good results. We made the finals of the ODAC conference both of those years. I took another year off and then my good friend, Nat Warren, who started the Norfolk State program, manipulated me, motivated me to coach Norfolk State for three years. And he started off by saying, hey, you know, you, you haven't coached every university in Norfolk. So I coached, um, 
uh, Norfolk State. So I'm born and raised in Norfolk, and I've coached all three universities in Norfolk. And um, now I sit at a club and um, uh, do I help I do some college recruit coaching. I help kids from all around the world uh, find coach them up in the recruiting process. I'm still doing some entrepreneur stuff with a company called Accu Tennis, and also Seven Shot Tennis. And um, so now I have a different life. I don't, I don't have to worry about scholarships, strings, or shoes. The three S's in college coaching, you know, scholarship, straight, and of course, you got to recruit. So that's it. 25 years of college coaching. And now I, I, uh, I pretty much hang out on a club on Fridays. And I do podcasts with young people, young, inspiring people that, you know, no man's land. And I drink coffee. So there you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, maybe give the, uh, the listeners, um, if you could, explain the UTR system. Sure. Um, the UTR system, it's a, it's a scale from 1 to 16, and uh, it's level-based. So um, if I could play 6-3, six, 6-4 six, with you two guys, and let's say you two guys are level 12s, if I could hang with you 6'3", six, 6'4", six, about 50% of the time, then I would be your level. So if you guys were 12s and I could play with you guys 6'3", six, 6'4", six, you know, that's a competitive match. Usually one break a serve each set. That, that score is deemed competitive. So they, they, that's how the rating system is organized. So uh, if, if – um, if a level 10 was playing against a level 10, they're more than likely they have competitive matches of 6-3, 6-4 or closer. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea is when, when we created it was simply just to get people good matches. So um, uh, like, like uh, a lot of the age-based tournaments, uh, if you added up all the matches, like 20% uh, of them were competitive. That means 80% of your customers didn't get a good match. Yeah. So when we organized them by level, now you started to get more good matches. Being a good match being defined as competitive. So six three six four competitive, six two six three routine routine, and maybe the six one six twos are in that range of more than the three service breaks. That's a decisive match. So that was the reason it was created. It was it was, it was a, to so we can organize people. In, in a level-based play to get them a good match. And it was simply that. Now, then it grew to other things. Now, one of the funny stories, we, we argued about different things, basically Dave Howe and myself. There was a time, you know, we're looking at the algorithm and, and Dave takes like 110% of the time to make a decision. He's 73 years old now and, and we're good friends. And he's sitting there, this was like 2008 or, and he's going, hey, Alex. And Alex was the former player who did the algorithm, Alessandro Kinkato from, and he was, he was a nationally ranked player. So Alex says, well, Dave, those are decimal points. And I said, so who cares about decimal points? Whole numbers are good, nine, 10. And Dave said, I think I like decimal points. Now, the reason I was getting pissed because we're trying to keep penetrating the market and he keeps worrying about this freaking detail of decimal points. So I go, hey, why don't we just go four deep? Let's go four deep. Hell, let's not stop at two decimal points. Let's go four. So we're already, man, and now come to find out, he holds it against me all the time. He goes, decimal points. Because decimal points, you know, people that log on that are true addicted users of UTR, hey, now while well, I'm a level 10, well, you level 10, are you a level 10, meaning you're like a nine, six and we're rounding up, or you're a 10, four and we're rounding down? 
you know. So when you say level 10, people uh, now, uh, the decimal points. And another sort of funny story, we, we only had 12 levels in the beginning because we were dealing locally. So um, I was tasked, uh, whether I tasked or just took it upon myself. So I made it 16 levels. I added four more levels. So uh, Dave Fish at Harvard, he's saying, hey, well, how'd you figure that out? That's very brilliant. And I said, well, 15 and 17 are odd numbers. That just sounds weird. And 20 felt like too much. So I picked 16 out of the sky. Now, it could have been 20, you know, I mean, who, you know, because it all fell in its own way. So, uh, you know, so those are some of the decisions that were made. Some of them just straight out random, pull them out of the sky, decimal points and the 16 levels. So it's a level-based approach. It doesn't factor in anything to do with winning or losing, just how competitive you are. So if you two guys could compete against Federer and Nadal and go 6-3, 6-4 and do it like 50% of the time, I mean, you're still losing to them, but you're, you're, you're that level. And if you were doing that, I would encourage you to bag the podcast. Let's mortgage the house and let's, <laughs> let's do some training at the Cape, man. Let's do oh, it. Yeah. I'm we'll let it ride. We'll let it ride. And, <laughs> and it's really easy to do it against them. I mean, the only thing you two guys need to do is hold serve. If you only lose serve once a set, you know, um, I forgot at the U.S. Open, who was that guy from UCLA? Oh, Cressy. He, yeah, Cressy. Cressy. Yeah, Cressy. You know, he's out there holding serve. He knows if he holds serve, he gets, you know, he, he had zero ground strokes. I mean, we got 14 and under girls training out here have better ground strokes than that dude. I mean, that cool thing, that guy sprayed it all over the place. He sprayed them all over the place. I just but watched that, him play in a challenger the other day, and he lost, like, second round. Yeah, well, if you get in contact with him, tell him I could coach him up because <laughs> – I mean, but the model's out there. You got to be like Dr. Evo. See, Dr. Evo, he holds serve, but he does the chip and charge thing. Hey, chip, let him pass you over and over again. And maybe you're going to get a pitch, right, like baseball. Maybe it's going to be 4, 5, 30 all. Now, that little chip, that guy's going to squeeze his butt, and he's going to spray the ball all over the place in the net. Yeah. That guy's and Isner the same way. And I actually coached against Isner. That's a bad loss in doubles. Um, semifinals, NCAA 7-5 in the third. That cost me – anyway, I, I, I probably wouldn't be doing the podcast. Ooh, be rich. But anyway, no, I like the podcast. But anyway, going back to Evo, see, he knows what he's doing. He, he just kind of chips it and comes in, and sometimes he takes a whack at it. That UCLA guy, he just takes a whack at it. I got to send him your way because it would be Cressy at the Cape. Sounds good. Now, hey man, now, now you're talking. There you go. Cressy at the Cape. I give him a discount, like forty dollars an hour, man. You know. Hey. Anyway, we, we had a we had like a, a viewer question come in a couple weeks ago about if you started up forty love in every game against Federer, who'd win? And I and man, Fred, you just serve and volley, serve and volley, chip and charge. All you gotta do is win one point. Well. Um, yeah, and now the system I like better than that is, is let's give Freddie X amount of points. So if we gave Freddie 14 points that he could take at any time against Federer. Ooh. Yeah, because that 40 love thing, you know, once you crap in the bed on the first point, and then he hits a good shot, and then next thing you know, you're at deuce. Once you're at deuce, your advantage has been neutralized. Yeah. You know, so, so – but when you can give them a, you know, like up north, they do it. They use, they call them bisque. We use them down here in training sometimes. And so, like, like 
and it's also fun to do for money. Hey, Freddie, hey, can you beat be this local junior yet? Yeah, this level 10? Yeah, man, I got him. And, um, okay, well, yeah, I, I tell you what, Freddie, how about we play for 20 bucks? But let me give him six points a set, and, I, and I'll choose when he takes them. Yeah. You know? And then, then now it gets a little bit more interesting. Now, and then if I get Freddie's father here, because Freddie never plays good in front of his father, because his father's <laughs> talking loud so much, and it's a distraction. That's worth two more points. That's only if you're around. Yeah, yeah I'll have I'll have him talking so much. He'll be talking about, yeah, hey, Freddie was this. And, you know, I mean, I knew Freddie before Freddie was born. I mean, his dad was talking about Freddie before he was conceived. <laughs> hey, we're going we're gonna to have a baby, and Freddie's going to be like this, and Freddie's going to be like that, and Freddie's going to Virginia Tech. I mean, he had it all figured out before conception. If it was, if it was up to him, I would have been a Gettysburg bullet. Now, what's a get? What's a Gettysburg bullet? I don't even know this. That's where my dad went. He went D three Gettysburg College basketball and tennis. Is that really a college? Yeah, <laughs> Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Come on. Yeah, I thought that was something like Abraham Lincoln kind of oh, thing. Yeah that's, yeah, that's where it's at. Carol, <laughs> real estate in your head, Fred, from like pre-birth. Yeah, yeah, pre-birth. Yeah, yeah. Freddie's going to attack. Well, yeah, uh, you know, well, you, the problem is you turned out to be too good of an athlete. You couldn't go to Gettysburg. Yeah. <laughs> well. Okay, now let me ask you, did we, did we answer the question that you may have asked about five minutes ago? Yeah, we're, I mean, this yeah, we're, is it was in there somewhere. UTR, UTR, right? Yeah. We're, it's loose. We love it. It's all good. UTR. Okay. Uh, well, that sort of brings me to all this college talk, like, Talk a little bit about your coaching experience. And I mean, I know you had 25 years of it, but do you have any kind of specific memories? Cause you were at the D3 level, the D1 level, men's tennis, women's tennis, and just any kind of memories that stick out to you or kind of your favorite college, just memories in general? Yeah, I mean, what you're really saying, hey, what were your greatest wins? I mean, because no one remembers, I mean, you know, the agony of defeat has kind of been flushed out of my head. But uh, I do remember, you know, um, I was always in a position with each team, whether it be Virginia Wesleyan, Norfolk State, and Old Dominion. Uh, their schools were 70% accept rates. They're, they're nice schools, good schools, great in the community. But we were in the conference, we always had a situation where we had to defeat the Roman Empire. You know, I'm always going against the Roman Empire. So I, I learned that you know, like self-awareness is king, right? So I would rather beat the Roman Empire than be the Roman Empire. So, for example, like the, uh, the women's team, we won the conference championship and we beat uh, CAA. We won the Colonial Athletic Conference against Women Mary and they won it 17 straight years in a row. Mm -hmm. And we won, we won it, you know, and now I probably had the most illegal team in the history of sports. I mean, my, my, I mean, there's a statute of limitations, so you can say certain things. So anyway, so my number one player was 220 in the world. My uh, it was that, that was her highest. My number three player was uh, – she, she had made 350 in the world. My number two player, that is. My number three player was top 25 ITF junior who's married to Tim Mayock. And my number four player was a Virginia kid who won multiple state championships. Now, five and six were kind of average. So we had to win at four, but then five and six started to, they started to, to gel off the conference, uh, the confidence of these players. So they actually thought they were really good. So um, anyway, so we beat William and Mary. We beat Clemson that year. We were down 3-0 and we won one through four. 
but to beat women, Mary and Brian Calbus, not only did we win the, the, the team, but the two, our top two individuals got to go to the NCAA and our top doubles team. So that year, women and Mary got nothing. And I remember at Bird Park watching them, and I actually had a sense of empathy of feeling how bad that is to be the team that didn't win the conference for the 18th time, and they won it 17 in a row. So that was, that was kind of a cool – I was so nervous on our match point, I kind of went to the bathroom at Bird Park, and I'm using the bathroom, and I hear all the clapping. I'm going, oh, man, we just won. You know, because, I mean, that last minute, I was like, you know, shaking, sweating, and stuff like that. So anyway, that was a good deal. Um, uh, we, we also had a men's team make the NCAA tournament, uh, and we beat Virginia Tech in the first round at Virginia, and then we lost to Virginia, so that was kind of cool. Um, that was good. We'll have to call the NCAA, have them, yeah. Yeah, and matter of fact, your boy Jim Thompson said to one, we were recruiting one of the guys at the same time. He goes, well, you know, Daryl coaches both men and women. Basically, he was insinuating that, uh, you know, that I, I'm not focused on one team. So I told the recruit, I go, that's right. But <laughs> Jim is focused on one team, and I just kicked his ass, okay? He, he's going home. And Jim's a good friend of mine. That's, you know, it's one thing to – beat Virginia Tech and another thing to be Virginia Tech you know I mean I understand the difference so uh, anyway uh, so uh, back 2007 to have two players in the main draw of Wimbledon was cool we had uh, Tippy Abziller who played for us for one year she won a national championship in 95 and she was the number one ranked player in the country in 95 so that was kind of a cool thing on the women's side and uh, they, they both played main draw of Wimbledon. Uh, Isaac had a qualifying. Tippy was already top 100 in the world. Then 2004, I served as Tippy's coach, my former player at the U.S. Open. She makes the second round of the U.S. Open after qualifying. And uh, she lost to Justine Hennen, her dam, the number one seed in three sets. And I negotiated the Geico patch. I mean, it was the night before the agent comes up to me. Hey, your girl wear Lotto or Nike? I go, Lotto. And he goes, she playing on the stadium court? And I go, yeah, she's playing Justine Hennen Hardin. So he goes, will she wear two Geico patches for $1,500? And I went, yeah. I mean, that was the negotiation. I just said yes. You know? That, 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 you know? And then I, I give her the patches next morning that we have to get sewn on. She goes, you could have got one patch for $1,500. That's what I'm saying. I was about to say, you, you only got $1,500? Man, it, it was new territory to me. I mean, I was, I'm just trying, I was trying to stay in my lane and I just said, yes. I mean, I, like, so then Tippy's giving me a hard time about the one patch and I go, hey, Tippy, you're 34 freaking years old. I mean, we don't have much of a market, man. What, what am I, what, who, what am I putting on the other patch? You know what I mean? Not like uh, Geritol? I mean, what, what are we going to put? I mean, I, I went with it, you know? So then when she goes, she wins the second set and Agassiz's following, I'm texting the agent. Hey, anywhere I could get a little bit more now? I mean, she's in the third set. So he, he texted me back, hey, if it was 0-1, would you have given me a refund? You know, kind of thing. So that, that was kind of cool. And um, so each stop along the way, I mean, a lot of programs have these hallmark moments. Uh, um, so, so that at, at Old Dominion of advancing to, I mean, we had 22 different individuals or, or teams make the, in, we had NCAA qualification 22 times you know, whether it be just a doubles team or a singles player. But um, the regional tournament was in, for the men, the regional tournament was in uh, North Carolina, University of North Carolina. And 
that was back when the region was big. It was all the ACC schools went there for the ITA fall regional. And so you had Florida State come up, Georgia Tech, the Clemsons and Virginias and North Carolinas. So we had two guys one year make the finals against each other. So in the semifinals, Harrell Shrugo had to play um, a number one guy from Virginia, Tread Huey, and, and, and Enrique Concado played a, a number one guy from North Carolina, and they both win, and they're playing against each other. That was the coolest thing because the, the parking lot's empty, and it's just us playing. And then Sam Paul, the University of North Carolina coach, comes up to me because, man, you just think you're a badass, don't you? And I said, Sam, is there any way you could just go out here and get me a cup of coffee right now? Because I'm kind of busy doing some work here. And, and so that, that was, a, that was a kind of a, a cool moment. But even at Norfolk State, we had a number one doubles team who beat a Princeton team. And uh, they got them in the national rankings for maybe two weeks at 55. And that was, that was kind of cool because to be in the national rankings, Norfolk State, uh, uh, in the MEAC conference, that, that, was a, that was a cool experience. So we've always been able to rub some stones together and get a little bit of luck. Well, that was awesome. Thanks, Daryl. Sure. Thanks, Daryl. All right, guys, that interview with Daryl was a lot of fun, as you could tell. Lots of laughing with that guy. But now time for this week's From the Grandstand. So our question this week is, what was the most outrageous player behavior you've seen live? Cole, I'll let you start. (laughs) Oh, man. This was my first professional live tennis event I've ever been to. It was like three years ago. So I just wanted to set the scene because I'm, I'm definitely in the wrong here. This involves me. This is not a player-to-player like interaction. So Player-to-fan? It was a player-to-fan interaction. So Jared Donaldson's playing out on like the third court at, this, uh, at, at City Open in D.C. here. And, you know, I, I wanted like a beer or something. I got up to like middle of second set. It's like two all... Probably, I don't know, it was something like in the middle of a game. And I just stood up and started to walk. Didn't know that you had to like wait. I thought it was like football, you know, you just get up and leave. <laughs> Jared sees me out of the corner of his eye and he goes, hey, dude, what are you doing? Like if anybody's seen Jared Donaldson freak out, do you ever remember when he freaked out like in uh, Monte Carlo? Oh, yeah. Where he was like, the mark, it's here, the mark. And we haven't seen him on tour in two years because he's got, like, a knee injury and all. But, like, man, I, it's like I, like, like I punched somebody he knew deeply or something. I don't know. He, he just, like, freaked out. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, man. And then you, I, I'm sitting next to Fred, and Fred's like, Cole, what are you doing? Just sit down. Like, you're at a tennis match. I'm like, Dude, I don't know. So, learned my lesson. I'm not going to do that again. But Supposedly a huge tennis fan and doesn't know that you have to wait till a changeover to leave the court. Like I said, it was my first time in a professional match. Now we have like, now we're like the media, Fred. So, yeah, it's like, we've learned our lesson. And then uh, the second one was Medvedev versus Steve Johnson. Same tournament. Uh, court two. <laughs> Stevie was up in the third set. This is like pre Medvedev greatness when he was a little fuck. When he was like, he's, when he was like being a fuck. He's probably like fifty in the world at this point. Johnson's doing pretty well. Like Johnson's probably top thirty. Um, yeah. night, night match. 
Night match. It's third set. Johnson's up a break and a hold, I think. Yeah. It's, it was like five two or something in the third, and yeah, I think it was. I think it was like four zero, and then it, he ended up. Medvedev sort of tanked a game, but won it, and it was four one. And then all of a sudden, the trainers coming out, yeah. and <laughs> it just gamesmanship to the next level. I'll let you finish, but yeah. Well, I want. I mean, he ended up breaking. Johnson's getting mad. It's Fergus Murphy in the chair. Ah, Steve Johnson's cussing up a storm. Fergus Murphy's like, calm down. Steve goes, with 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 all due respect, Fergus, you've lost any ability to tell me what the fuck to do. <laughs> he ends up losing the match. He's like, bullshit Russian. And oh, he's screaming for the tournament director to come out there. It's and this was like early on in my tennis life, so I was like, "What's going on? This is epic." <laughs> but yeah, so that one was it. And Medvedev is so Johnson walks off court, right? He like he loses the match, gets his bags, screams at everybody, walks off court. Medvedev is on court, like having a like psychiatrist sit down with like Fergus talking about like Fergus, like why. Why is everybody not like me? Like it was just like he was like having a moment. Like I, he was like, "What? What? Why can he do this?" It was like ridiculous. So it was, it had everything. It had everything. Yeah, that was wild for me. Both of my experiences were at the City Open as well. One, I was probably, I was probably eight, maybe nine years old, and I'm sitting watching Marty Fish versus Marat Safin down on like the second grandstand. You just and, dated yourself. And. <laughs> We're watching and it's, I don't know, I think they're in like the second set and Marty was, Marty had set points to force a third and they're having this brutally long point and Fish hits a drop shot, Safin runs up, barely gets it, Fish just dinks away the volley winner, so Marat's at the net and he just turns around and faces the back fence and sends a racket to the back fence as hard as he can, like Lines person is dodging this racket that's getting sent at the back fence. Completely snaps in half. Walks right to the bench. I'm sitting right behind his bench. He just tosses me the racket. Oh, so let's I've go. Got, I've got Safin smashed prestige something. Head prestige red racket. Um, <laughs> God. So that was like one of my first tennis memories of this. And then the other outrageous one was on the same court. And me and you were watching this. And we were basically sitting in the same spot with, with Safin. Um and we're watching the Zverev brothers play against Ivan Dadig and uh, P- Pavic. Ma- what's his name? Mate or something? Or um, yeah, uh, mate. I call him mate. Yeah, mate Pavic. <laughs> and Sasha hits a serve, and th- there was there was basically a line call dispute, but there wasn't really. It, it couldn't be challenged, and they had the challenge system on the court. And so Dodig is going up to the chair and he's like, why can I not challenge the call? Like, it was winner. I hit the winner and now I cannot challenge. And, and Zverev's just telling him to shut the fuck up and just, just terrible. Like, they're just going at it. And so they finish this service game and they're at the changeover. And as they walk by at the changeover, Sasha Zverev just spits right on Ivan Dodig's face. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I remember that. Can you I imagine remember. now in the COVID days if that guy does that? He's getting like thrown in jail. I mean, like, he didn't land. It, the spit didn't land on it, but like. Dude, he spit. They were, they it, were, it was his direction. They were two feet from each other and he just looked right at me and just went, spit right at him. I was like, this is. Sasha's probably like 25 in the world at this point and he's like this up and coming. Like, he's, they know he's going to be one of these next ones. 
and he's just he was an arrogant yeah, and, arrogant one and Misha turned his head and didn't even see anything it's not do you know what I mean like he's just oh, like yeah. he's the older brother he's like I'm not gonna be a part of this nonsense <laughs> not gonna be a part of this nonsense yeah I remember that well as we end and I'm looking back at this three of our four stories involved Russians so I think actually all four if you count <laughs> if you count <laughs> Zverev yeah <laughs> yeah so that's uh I don't know what that tells you but <laughs> fiery over there in that part of the world but thank you guys for tuning in. We'll, uh, we'll be back next week and see if there's any more drama on tour. So thanks, guys. See you.